Over the last few weeks, we've uh, attempted to ask the question of where is God when life hurts? And uh, this is the fourth study in the series of where is God when life hurts? And I believe that that's the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith. Where is God in times of suffering? Making sense of suffering in our lives. And uh, we've looked at this subject over the last uh, few weeks. And we've looked at this subject uh, philosophically, theologically, biblically, economically. And this morning we're going to be looking at that pastorally. And uh, some of the things I'm going to share with you this morning are very much of a different feel to some of the other studies so far. I've been a pastor now for 28 years and involved in Christian ministry even before that time. And uh, I've, during that time, I've interacted with and prayed for and counseled uh, many people who are going through hardship and suffering in their lives. And during this time of Christian ministry, I've also witnessed um, the reaction of Christians, perhaps to their friends, friends who are also suffering. And sometimes those Christians have brought great consolation and comfort to their friends. And uh, it's, it, it's been great just to see that um, friends who bring people into an encounter with the peace of God and enable their friends perhaps to, to carry on in the midst of the storm. But there have also been other times when um, the advice, the help or the counsel, even though it was well-meaning by Christians, has been anything but helpful. And sometimes I've noticed that the advice of some Christians has been... Um, has, has actually intensified the suffering that the, uh, the friends have experienced, bringing sometimes guilt or condemnation uh, on top of all that they were suffering. I've sometimes been amazed and sometimes occasionally dismayed over the, the comfort, and I put that in speech marks, the comfort offered by some modern-day Job's comforters. Uh, Author Philip Yancey, I know that many of you uh, enjoy his, his writings, he tells a story, a story of a friend of his named Claudia uh, Claxton. Claudia was uh, a newlywed in her early 20s, and she was, dis um, she was uh, diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease, uh, cancer of the lymph glands. And she was only given 50% chance to live. And within a week, the surgeons had removed every visible trace of cancer from her body. But then with cancer treatment, there were other treatments as well that started to take their toll upon her. And um, her, her beauty disappeared almost overnight. And she looked weary, and she was weary. Her skin darkened. Her hair fell out. Her throat was raw. She regurgitated uh, almost everything that she ate. And Claudia was a Christian, and she belonged to a church. And in her time of utter desperation, she believed that her church family would come along and offer her support and uh, some perspective on all that she was suffering. But often their voices proved rather confusing rather than consoling in her time of need. When she was in hospital, first of all, a deacon from a church visited her. And he solemnly advised her to reflect on what God was trying to teach her in all of this. He said to her, 
Surely there is something in your life that must displease God. These things don't just, ha- don't just happen. You must have somewhere stepped outside of God's will. And that was his message. A few days later, Claudia was surprised to see a woman uh, visit her from the church, a woman that she hardly knew. She was rather plump, uh, scatterbrained widow, and she adopted the role of a professional cheerleader. She brought flowers. She sang hymns long enough to... Um, and, and, and she stayed long enough to read some happy scriptures on, on brooks running and mountains clapping their hands. But whenever Claudia tried to talk about her illness or her prognosis, this woman quickly changed the subject, trying to combat the suffering with cheer and with, um, with goodwill. The good news was that that lady only visited once. There's a verse which I came across in uh, Proverbs if you could put that on screen, Dave, thank you. Proverbs 25:20. it says this. Singing cheerful songs to a person with a heavy heart is like taking someone's coat in cold weather or pouring vinegar in a wound. Some good advice for us there. Another woman dropped in to see Claudia in hospital. And she was a, a faithful follower of the television, Faith Healers. And when Claudia told this lady about her deacon's reaction, the woman nearly exploded. She said, sickness is never, ever God's will. Haven't you read the Bible, she said. The devil is, is a roaring lion, but God will heal you if you can somehow muster up enough faith, you will be healed. And just before she left, she said to Claudia, Claudia, faith can move mountains, and that includes Hodgkin's disease. Simply claim your promise, and in faith, claim your victory. Well, the next morning, Claudia lay there in the sterile uh, treatment room in the hospital, trying to do what her friend had said, to muster up faith. She didn't question God's supernatural power, not at all. But she couldn't understand what this woman meant by mustering up faith. Wasn't faith, after all, supposed to be something which was given as a gift from God? Then she received a visit from a lady who was regarded within her church as very spiritual. And she brought along some books uh, about praising God for everything that happens. Not only in everything, but for everything that happens. And the lady said to her, thank the Lord for, what you need to say is thank the Lord for making me suffer like this. It's your will, and I know that your will is best for me. As much as Claudia reflected on those words, her mind was filled with quite grotesque images of, of God. A God who apparently took great delight in squeezing helpless human beings between his fingernails and pulverizing them with his fists and dashing them against the rocks. This God figure that she spoke about was certainly not the God that she had understood, the God of the Bible. The God who says that we have to love him for doing these things to us. And the idea repulsed Claudia. And she decided that she couldn't love or worship such a God as that. And then the pastor visited. And he, on his visit, made Claudia feel that um, she was on a very select mission. He said to her, Claudia, you have been appointed to suffer for Christ. And he will reward you. 
God chose you for this because of your strength and your integrity, much in the way that he chose Job. And he is using you as an example to others. And their faith will increase because of your response. And you should feel privileged, not bitter. And what we see as adversity, God sees as opportunity. And she thought about this, and sometimes the, the notion of being a privileged martyr actually appealed to Claudia in a, in a self-pitying kind of way. On a, other times, though, her pain crescendoed. Um, there were times that she vomited her food. There were times when her throat was so sore that she couldn't swallow. And she cried out, God, why me? There are millions of other Christians far more honorable than me. Couldn't you have chosen one of them instead? Philip Yancey, in this incredible story, he tells that he also visited his friend Claudia in hospital. And he just found her utterly and desperately confused by all of the information that she had received, contradictory words from many of her sincere and well-meaning friends. Which of these lessons was she supposed to be learning? In which way could she have more faith? What image of God was she to embrace? And the only thing that she knew with certainty that her life was just disintegrating, her happy life with her husband John of one year was just falling apart. Yancey says that he didn't have any answers for her, that um, as much as she wanted them, and as he left his uh, friend's bedside, he himself said that he had many other questions. But there was something within him that recoiled at the cliched comments of the visitors. And he asked himself, Christianity is supposed to make, or rather, is Christianity supposed to make a sufferer feel worse about themselves? Surely the faith founded on the great physician should bring peace, not confusion in a time of crisis. You see, in all those visitors, there were elements of truth in what they had to say, but there were only elements. It certainly wasn't the whole truth. The truth was certainly mixed with an awful lot of trash. And in my years as a pastor, I have sadly encountered all of those views of the friends of Claudia in ministry. I have heard all of those things said at one time or another. Such views that bring confusion and anxiety and guilt and condemnation Views which very often compound uh, physical suffering by telling the, the person that what they're experiencing is because they are deficient in some way, that they don't have enough faith, or that there's sin in their lives, or that they brought this upon themselves, or that God is wanting to teach them a lesson. Sorry, I'm too quick for you. No? Okay, good. Or that God's character is maligned in some way. You see, formulaic, formulaic answers are very often destructive. They really are. And sadly, many Christians, that's what they have, is formulaic answers to this issue. A better way forward, I believe, is to listen to Paul's wise advice in Romans 12, verse 15. For us to rejoice with those who rejoice, and for us to weep with those who weep. That's pretty good advice, I would say. This morning, we're on the final talk in this short series, Where is God When Life Hurts? And I can hardly believe 
that we've got this far, that we've had three whole talks and we're partway through this fourth talk, and I've not mentioned the book of Job. The book of Job in the Old Testament, one of the oldest stories in the Bible. As uh, many of us know, Job is a, an ancient narrative of a, of a man who was upright, who was spiritual, and he loves God with all of his heart. And yet, Job suffers terribly. Calamity upon calamity comes upon him. Raiders, um, tornado, fire, bandits take away his uh, family from him, his possessions. His entire family is taken away from him, um, with the exception of his wife, and I think he could have done without her. <laughs> well, you need to read the account yourself. <laughs> but following these calamities, he, uh, his health deteriorates. He breaks out in ulcerous boils. So his health, his wealth, and his family are all taken away from him. And the pain of loss is something that Job can put up with. But what bothers him most is that sense of betrayal. Up until this point in his life, he has always believed in a just and a caring and a loving God. But now things are just simply falling apart. He is saying that, why me? Why me? What's going on? What did I do? What is God trying to teach me? living a, an upright life, and yet, at the same time, he is suffering terribly. Many of you know that story quite well, because now enter into that story four characters, Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz, and Elihu, Job's friends. And as you read about these Job's friends, you can see that they were devout and, and, and reverent men who eruditely discussed Job's suffering. And they come to almost identical conclusions. Did you know that? They come at Job's suffering from different angles, but they nearly all come to the same conclusion. And the conclusion is this. Job, God is trying to tell you something. No one suffers without a cause. Common sense and reason tell us that God will not treat people unjustly. God is a fair God. Those who obey God and remain faithful will be rewarded by God. And those who sin will be punished. So Job, if you confess your sin, then I'm sure God will release you from all this misery. And that's the message of Job. Don't you think that sounds rather contemporary? I do. You know, as you listen to the arguments there of Claudia's friends when they came into that hospital to meet with her, it's the same arguments that we find in the book of Job. And I think that we can rightly criticize Job's friends. You know, they were insensitive. But if you carefully read the account, we will notice that the first thing that they did was that they came along to Job and they spent seven days and seven nights in silence before they did anything or said anything, before they opened their mouths. And afterwards, lots of eloquent words flowed from their mouths. But I believe that the most important the most profound and the most eloquent words of all were, were not words, it was silence when they sat alongside him. If you're a person this morning who has gone through times of suffering, you know, you've gone through real hardships, and you were asked the question, who helped you most? I will guarantee you that you will not say that it is some unknown philosopher 
or theologian. But most people will speak of some quiet and assuming person who listened far more than they talked. People who didn't keep on glancing down at their watch. A person who hugged, touched, cried. A person who came on the sufferer's terms, not on their own terms, or wanting to preach a sermon. A couple of months ago, I read again the 42 chapters in in Job. (coughs) Read it many times over my time as a Christian. And um, after all the arguments and the the counter-arguments of why Job had suffered so much, we come to chapter 38 and then through to chapter 42. God speaks. You've heard all of Job's friends speaking, all their ideas and what's going on. You've heard Job speaking a lot. But in chapter 38, you read that God now speaks. And it's probably one of the longest speeches in the Bible. And if you uh, don't have time this week to read through all 42 chapters of Job, I do encourage you to read through the last five chapters. So what did God say to Job after he'd been through so much trouble? Did God gently place his hand on Job's head and tell him that he was now going to grow so much as a person because of all that he had suffered? Did God express to Job a sense of pride and saying, well done for the way that you've suffered, well done for going through all of that? Maybe it was a few kind words, a smile of compassion, a brief explanation maybe. Any of those things would have made it so much easier and so much better for Job. But God said nothing of the sort. In Job 38, verses 2 and 3, and we put the verses up before you. This is what God said. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. And I find God's response here um, rather astonishing, because we need to remember that the context of God coming out with what he is saying was that Job was homeless, he was friendless, he was ulcerous, he lost his family and his wealth. And yet for the next four chapters in the Bible, God chooses not to answer any of the questions that Job has or any of the questions that his friend had. And virtually ignoring 35 chapters worth of debates on the problem of suffering, God now comes out with questions of his own. And we're not going to read all of them, but my word. These are some questions. Let me read some verses to you. And these are the questions which just go on and on and on of God. Job 38, verse 4 to 7. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations or who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Verse 12. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth and bring an end? To the, light, to the night's wickedness. 
Verse 16. Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. Where does light come from and where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you not know? Do you know how to get there? But of course you know all this, for you were born before it was created, and you are so very experienced. Have you visited the storehouses of the snow, or seen the storehouses of hail? And God asks Job questions about the sunrise, about rain and snow, about thunderstorms, about lions, about mountain goats, ostriches, horses, birds of prey, crocodiles, wild oxen. And after each question, after each question, God either stated or implied, Job, you are powerful enough. Are you powerful enough to duplicate these feats? Are you wise enough to run the world? And I love the way that God asks these questions because he uh, even employed some sarcasm there. Look at verse 21. Could you put 21 up? For of course you know all this. For you were born before it was all created and you are so very experienced. You see, I've always believed that sarcasm is is a godly thing. And, um, And I've got some proof there. But God's words hit Job with devastating power and they brought him to a place of repentance and a place of absolute surrender. And Job can't take anymore. And this is the response that we get from Job in chapter 42, verses 2 and 3. I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I, And I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things far too wonderful for me. In other words, Job had got to that place in his life where he says, God, you win. Who am I? What do I know anyway? You see, God didn't answer many of Job's questions about suffering and unfairness. Not really. God saw no need for self-defense. But we may ask, well, why was it that God needed to speak with such forcefulness to Job? What did God want from Job? And what God wanted from Job was simple. What God wanted was an admission of trust. Have you got that? That's what what those questions in about four chapters were all about. Bringing Job to an admission of trust. And you see, the message behind the, the, the wonderful poetry that we find in these uh, four or five chapters, chapters 38 to 42, can be reduced just to one statement, and it's this. Job, until you know a little bit more about running the physical universe, don't tell me how to run the moral universe. That's it. Before you know a little bit more about the physical universe, don't you tell me how to run the moral universe. And if we, like Job, are so ignorant about the wonders of this world, the, uh, a world that we can see and a world that we can touch, who are we 
to sit in judgment on God's government of the universe. And then God went on to rebuke Job's friends for all that they said, their lack of understanding and their misrepresentation of God. I said a few weeks ago that the why question, the looking back question of, of, of why suffering, why suffering in my life, why suffering in the world, that question is not that important. It was one that Jesus refused to answer as we look back a few weeks ago. It was one here that God refuses to answer to Job. But the more, in question, uh, the more important question, rather, is the, the forward-facing question. Not the backward-looking question of why, but rather the forward-facing question of to what end. And God's desire is that for those who are experiencing suffering, and I guess that many of you have and are experiencing suffering, if not for yourself, within your family life, there are others who are around you who are experiencing hardship and hurt at this time. And you see, God's ideal for Job was to bring him to that admission of trust. And that's where God desires to bring us to. I love what uh, Dr. John Stott once said. He said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arm folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have had to turn away, and in imagination I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of this. You see, in our quest for explanations, we can sometimes become all twisted emotionally and embittered in spirit. But the choice is ours. The choice is either to uh, turn away from God and become embittered in spirit or to turn to God. And when we turn to him, we can know both peace and courage. We can either run away or run to him. There's a poem that I came across uh, written by a 15-year-old girl by the name of Dora Tenenoff. In 1993, some Colombian extremists broke into, across the border into Panama and went to a village where her father, um, Rick, and two other missionaries were working. And they were working, trying to make a better life for the Kuna Indians. These uh, terrorists came in and they, they took the missionaries. And uh, 22 years on, they remain missing, presumed dead. But in response to this terrible tragedy, Dora, this 15-year-old daughter of one of the missionaries, wrote this poem. There once was a man, a man I once knew, 
who told me stories every night, laughed at my jokes and held me tight. He told me, don't quit. Always fight the good fight. He said, love the Lord with all of your heart and serve him with all of your might. He begged me, do right. There was once a man, a man I once knew, who taught me how to tie my shoe and gently smiled at every picture I drew. He told me, when you start something, don't stop until the job is through. He said, I love you. There once was a man, a man I once knew. I saw him in my dream, and it made me scream. I called out, Daddy, but he told me nothing. He had nothing to say, for what can you say when you are far, so very far away? Daddy, I said. Then a voice echoed in my head. I lay quiet and still in my bed. Again, the voice. Your daddy made a choice, a choice to serve me with all his might to not give up, to fight the good fight. He's doing a job for me and is not yet through. So remember, I love you. There now is a man, a man I now know. He lived and he died to save men from their sin. He made it possible for us to be born again. I know because my daddy told me so. And even though he's no longer here, my God will always be near to fill in the gaps to show me which way to go. I miss my dad so much, but God has a plan. So for now, I'll just wait and watch the work of his hand. There once was a man, a man I once knew. He's now just a memory, slowly fading away. Dead or alive, you ask? I don't know, I say. So I beg you, please pray. Pray my daddy knows that every night I whisper, Daddy, I love you. There now is a man, a man I now know. Every day he becomes more real to me. Every day in him I grow. Every day I pray that my love for him will show. I've made a choice to serve him with all my might. To not give up, to fight the good fight. Here on earth, I may not see my dad again. But that's all right, because when my life here is through... I'll finally hear them both say, my child, I love you. You see, we have a choice. We have a choice in life's hardships and suffering to turn bitter or to turn to God. And as we turn to God, we will know his peace and we will know his courage. The courage that Dora found, that 15-year-old who wrote that incredible poem. You see, God is a father to the orphans and a husband to the widow. God is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit, say the scriptures. And the ultimate answer, and we are coming to the end of this four-week series, the ultimate answer to suffering isn't an explanation. Yes, I've tried to give explanations when we've dealt with this economically and philosophically and theologically, but the answer to suffering isn't an explanation. The answer is the incarnation. God isn't some distant, detached, disinterested deity, but he entered our world of pain, and he sits beside us in the lowly, awful, hard places of our lives. From the depths of a Nazi death camp, Corrie ten Boom wrote, no matter how deep our darkness, he is deeper still. Isn't that wonderful? No matter how deep our darkness, 
He is deepest still. So if we are broken this morning, we need to remind ourselves that he was broken for us. If we are despised, we need to remember that we come to one who is despised and rejected of men. If we are sorrowful and grief-stricken, we need to remember that our Lord is one who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. If people betray us, we need to know that Jesus was betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. And this morning, you might be a person who's yearned, listened to all of these talks, and you might have been going through serious difficulties yourself, through illness, family problems, financial problems, unemployment, bereavement, depressive illness, divorce, or a thousand and one other hardships. You might have even this week asked, where are you, God? Why me? Well, I would say to you that the answer to suffering is the answerer. The answer to suffering is the answerer. It's not a bunch of words, but it's the word. It's not a tightly woven philosophical argument, but it's a person, the person, Emmanuel, God with us. In the first week that we looked at this subject, we sang Clive's song. Your thoughts are so much higher than mine, I see so dimly at times. Your ways are so much higher than mine, and yet you care about my life. The first verse went on to say, teach me to trust you. Teach me to hold to you. Teach me to walk with you, even though sometimes I'm blind. Teach me to run to you. Teach me to come to you. Teach me to trust you, Lord, and your plan for my life. Teach me to trust your ways, O oh Lord. Great song. And we're going to sing that now. Guys, if you'd like to come back. And I want that this morning to be our prayer response. Over many weeks we've been saying that we've been trying to put the jigsaw pieces together to understand more of why, why me, why suffering in the world and trying to make sense of suffering. And right at the very start, I said that even all the jigsaw pieces that we are putting together, we won't have a complete picture because there are jigsaw pieces missing, believing that one day we will receive the full picture when we meet him face to face. And until then, our prayer and the prayer of our hearts needs to be, teach me to trust you, Lord. And I want this this morning not to be just a song. You know, we sing songs, and sometimes I'm not sure whether we always fully appreciate the, the, the sentiments of the things that we're singing. But as we are singing this this morning, there are things in our lives, I'm sure, that we will want to say, Lord, I am handing this over to you. I, I really don't understand. I'm really not sure of what this is all about. But I am making a conscious decision today to put my trust in you. That's the place that Job was brought to by God, by all those hard questions, by all those incredible questions, the longest speech in the Old Testament. And I today want us to come to that place. You know, what's going on in your life, the person might not, next to you might not know. But it's for us to come and say, Lord, you know my heart. You know my griefs. You know all that's going on. And I want to trust you. And I'm going to trust you. 
And I'm going to place myself before you once again today. In Jesus' name. Would you stand, please?